Good morning. Psalm 34.8 tells us that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I got to tell you, I can't help but think of that verse and immediately think about food. And one of my favorite foods is fried chicken. Anyone else love fried chicken? How many of you grew up on Sunday afternoon going to grandma's house having fried chicken? You know, holy bird. You know what I'm talking about? And I create, I get it. I, I understand the dilemma that I've already created for ourselves because I've got us thinking about fried chicken and Chick-fil-A is not even open today. But how many of you, when you go through the serving line, you love the question, light or dark? How many, how many light folks are here? How many light meat? How many dark meat folks? Dark meat folks. How, <laughs> how many like me? Just a little bit. Both, please. Hands raised. Both, please. The answer to the question, light or dark, in matters of meal is pretty innocent, if I'm honest. Outside of your waistline, it's pretty innocent, kind of inconsequential. But as we'll see in today's passage, the question of light or dark is incredibly important and it, it matters for eternity. It's a very serious question. And today's passage helps us bring it to light. How many of you have ever heard of the book, uh, The Screw Tape Letters? Okay, C.S. Lewis wrote a fascinating novel um, years ago, 77 years to be exact, where he wrote a series of letters uh, from a senior demon, screw tape, to his nephew Wormwood, a junior tempter. And it's just a, a picture, a story, if you will, from the evil perspective of discipleship. How a master demon would disciple a younger demon. Screw tape is essentially mentoring his nephew and helping him learn how to tempt a man away from God and into eternal hell. In other words, it's a fictional story that helps you and I begin to see the way that the devil sees Christians. And I have an excerpt from it. Here it is. It says, My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep... I'm going to just read it from here to be safe. <laughs> the patient in ignorance of your own existence... The question, at least for the present phase of struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy, for the moment, is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism, and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists skeptics, at least not yet. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicions of your existence begin to arise in the mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. And although this was published 77 years ago in 1942, the relevance of what C.S. Lewis is talking about still has an uncanny, an uncanny relevance today. For instance, there are several perspectives on the spiritual world today. Number one, there are many people who believe that simply doesn't exist, that the devil is nothing more than 
a red-tided, uh, horned with a pitchfork, comical figure. And if you believe in him, you are simply naive. Anyone come across this experience? And then there are others who have a tendency to over-spiritualize everything. That every common headache, every bad grade, getting injured is a spiritual attack from the enemy. Amen? Somewhere in the middle we find ourselves. Somewhere between both perspectives. Here at the fellowship, we understand that the Bible is the story. It's a collection of the redeeming work of God, and it, it's embodied in Jesus. We'll see that today in the passage. Jesus in John 1 was called the Word of God. We believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and when it says something, we take it seriously. Ephesians 6.12, it says that we are in a battle. It says, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens, and we have to take that seriously. Which means, the devil's not some little figment of our imagination, running around in red tights, but that he is real. Very real, and even today, a strategy of his is to conceal his reality from humans and to make us believe that spiritual choices that we make of who we follow or don't seem rather innocent. But they're not. Those choices mean everything. They mean eternity. And today, he is, like it says in Ephesians 6, shooting flaming arrows at us to tempt us and to take us down, to ruin us and to ruin everyone around us that we love. Anyone experience what I am talking about? Which is why we need to daily put on the armor of God, praying that we trust as we gird ourselves with the belt of truth. There's a spiritual battle that has been going on even before Jesus stepped foot on the earth. But when Jesus entered the world, and even more so as we've been looking through Mark, he began his ministry. You see these forces of light and dark begin to collide. Which brings us to the passage today in Mark 3, verse 20. I'm going to read it for you. I have three, uh, four D's that I want to cover today. Okay? There's doubt, there's denial, there's division, and then there's distinction. I'll get to those. I'll break them down after we read this text. Here it is. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. So packed, they couldn't eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he is out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. He said, How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, a kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can plunder his house. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. His mother and brothers came and standing outside, they 
sent word to him and called him and said, A crowd is sitting around him and told him, Look, your, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters, they're waiting outside asking for you. He replied to them, Who are my brother? Who are my mother? Look at those sitting in the circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and mother. Folks, I want to start with the family working backwards because this whole story, the meat's found in the middle, but it's bookended with this question of his, his family at the beginning and end, and they doubt who he is. Now, I don't, I don't see any argument here because here's the reality. Now, Mary doesn't doubt who he is. Mary was there. She was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and she was the one that called on Jesus prior to his ministry to help at the wedding feast in Cana by turning water to wine. Without him doing that, the whole wedding would be ruined. We know that it was a relative of Jesus. I personally believe this was one of the siblings of Jesus. That's why she felt this deep sense of responsibility that she did. But these siblings grew up with him. And when someone in their day... Um, was listed, they would say, Joseph, son of so-and-so. Jesus, son of Joseph. And Joseph was a carpenter, and so Jesus, by trade, was a carpenter as well. Spoke volumes about who he was. We don't know about Joseph in Scripture at this point. We assume that he's dead already because he hasn't showed up after the, the nativity time. We don't know what has taken place. You don't hear of him much more. So here's the thing that I want to say that I believe is taking place with his brothers and sisters. When it says that they show up to restrain him because they think he's crazy, that he's lost his mind. The word restrain there in the Hebrew is the same word for arrest. It's used by Mark throughout his gospel to arrest him, to stop him from continuing to make a buffoon of himself. They don't want him to continue to sound crazy before the people. Why? Because though they were raised with him and his children, they never saw this guy make a mistake. They never also, because he was the son of a carpenter, assumed that he might be the Messiah. Now, eventually they will. This doubt is not long-lived and seeming, seemingly innocent. His younger brother James will go on and write the epistle to James even the apostles in Acts, you'll see them defer to James as the leader of the Council of Jerusalem because he would end up dying a martyr's death because of his faith in his older brother Jesus. So he and they will turn and believe. It is short-lived. But immediately right here, they're looking at him and they may out of their own sense of protection of him or, listen, their own protection of their father's name who may be dead already and you've got a defamation of character. As Jesus is going around and people are starting to talk about who he is and now he's claiming that he is God. They're going, wait a second, we played Israelites and Egyptians. We remember. And so they kind of doubt his existence a little bit. But it proves to be innocent in the end because eventually they'll be turned to faith. Now, the second question here is far more intense, and that is denial, the second D that we'll look at. Because there is a group here that comes from Jerusalem sent by the Sanhedrin to defame his character, to show up and show out that this man 
is a problem. That he claims not only to be of God, but he claims to be in fact God, and that is a problem. Now, you got to understand the way that God sees the world, okay? It's also the very same way the Jews saw the world. It should be the very same way we see the world. God saw the world in two ways, lost and saved, child of wrath and child of God. There is no in-between. So the leaders hear this message of Jesus uh, that he is Messiah and that he is in fact God and Lord, and they deny that message. They're unwilling to accept that, okay? But they have a problem. Do you know what their problem is? As we've been reading through Mark, we've learned that he has authority over the devil, darkness, illness, demons. He's raised the dead. He's healed the leper. He's healed the paralytic. We have a problem because while we may deny his message, his method and his ministry is absolutely undeniable because he has a power that is supernatural. And in their world, supernatural power only comes from God or it comes from the enemy. And they go, he's definitely not of God, so therefore. Hello? And this is how they get to where they are with him. So this, this argument that comes out of this passage is an age-old one through church history. It's called the Trilemma. C.S. Lewis actually made it famous in a publication that he printed 10 years after the Screwtape's letters in Mere Christianity. He presents this argument as Liar, lunatic, or Lord? Anyone ever heard the argument? C.S. Lewis made it famous, but it didn't originate with him. Actually, if you want to be quite fair, Watchman Nee predated him by several years, and he said this in his book, Normal Christian Faith. It says, first, if he claims to be God and yet in fact is not, then he has to be a madman. A lunatic. He has to be crazy, much like his own brothers and sisters thought. But this is proving in their faith in the end to be innocent. But he must be crazy. It's like if someone came in today and said, I'm the Messiah. We'd all turn our back because that man is nuts. Correct? I hope so. Okay. But second, if he is... Neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a liar deceiving others by his lie. And this is where your Pharisees land. Third, if he's neither of these, then he must be God. You can only choose one of these three possibilities. If you do not believe that he is God, then you have to consider him a madman. If you cannot take him for either of those two, you have to take him for a liar. Watchman, he says this, there is no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he's a lunatic or a liar, because if he's neither, then he must be the son of God. He was predated by the famous preacher from Scotland called the rabbi. John Duncan eludes us to the issue of the trilemma. So this goes back way before C.S. Lewis, but the issue still exists and exists for us today. It's the problem that the, the religious elite took with Jesus. They look at him and go, he sounds like a madman, but his supernatural power is undeniable. So we're unwilling to accept him as one of us. We're unwilling to accept that he, like us, is from God, so he must be of the enemy. So they say that he is of Beelzebul. 
Now, Beelzebul, to understand, because their very accusation comes at him for his ability to cast out demons, okay? Casting out demons. So they accept that you have supernatural power in Jesus. They accept that this is undeniable. But they also say that it must be by the authority of demons that he casts out demons. Beelzebul is a specific name given to a god that was challenged by the Ekronites. Let me give you a little history. First and second Kings, if you go back and read at, at, the, um, at the capture of the Ark of Jesus, or the capture of the Ark of God, the covenant, you're going to find that when that covenant Ark makes its way through the Philistines' camps, through Philistia, the, the countries of Philistia, you're going to find that the Philistines are a pluralistic people. And each town that it goes to, they have kind of temples built to each individual gods. One of the gods they're going to come against is the god of Ekron or the Ekronites. His name was Baal. Maybe you've heard. But the word in Hebrew for Baal in their terms, lowercase b, actually just means Lord. So it could be pluralistic, could be many. And they, they believe, the god of the Ekronites, they gave him a name. His name was Beelzebub, with a B at the end. Beelzebub, the lord of the high places. That's his name. So, Baal of the high places, Beelzebub. Because the Judaizers didn't want to be able to give any credit to anyone other than the one true God, they actually call and they change the name from Beelzebub to Beelzebul, which means the Lord of the low places or Lord of the dung. Lord of the flies of the dung, if you want to be more clear. So Lord of the low places, something completely opposite of the God of our existence, Lord of the low place. So Beelzebul is what they give him credit for. They say that he must be of Satan. Again, there are only two kinds of supernatural power, two sources of said power. That's God or Satan. They say he must be with him. Here's the problem. They hear a message from Jesus that they're unwilling to receive but they see a power to accompany said message that they're unwilling to accept. This kind of full knowledge denial or rejection altogether is going to prove deadly in their lives and in your and mine. Because Jesus begins to expose the division right here. In this passage, Jesus calls them over to himself. And he says... Boys, I expect Jesus used that word. <laughs> it's almost as if he, come, he calls them over and says, okay, uh, boys, uh, how, let, me, let me just throw this out. How does what you're suggesting even work? How does what you are suggesting even mathematically add up? How does what you suggest about me and my authority over the dark even literally make sense? It makes no sense. How can a kingdom that's divided, a house divided, stand? Why in the world would Satan, whose kingdom is to aim totally at the kingdom of God, 
torment people and keep them from freedom in God, cast out an agent that has any person that is completely outmatched by the, the enemy, by a demon, why would he cast out an agent of darkness, an agent of himself, when they have a human enslaved, deceived, tormented, and bound for hell? Why would Satan thwart his own plans and strategy? Causing his own kingdom to struggle, his own house to divide. How does this make sense to you? Why would Satan, who you and I both know, is completely outmatched by God himself and subservient to him, read Job. He's not allowed to do anything except by the sovereign permission of God. Why would Satan do anything to help God's kingdom? If he did, Satan would be finished. His kingdom would be done. Anyone's kingdom would because there's no way for it to stand. Satan has not today, was not then, and has never been in the business of helping God's kingdom. Hello? That's all Jesus is pointing out from screw tape letters. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to believe in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. The truth is, there is a spiritual battle happening. It happens all the time around us. One of the strategies is to make us believe as if it doesn't exist. As if those who want to steal, kill, and destroy from you. Shooting fire areas in direction. Those who it says the Bible, the father of all lies, the enemy, the power of the prince of the air, who hates you and I, doesn't in fact exist. And Jesus here tells you, the religious leaders of his day not only believed in Satan, they said Jesus is from Satan. And this, this thus makes a distinction that we all need to listen to. So here's the distinction. Let me read verse 28 again. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So Jesus is going to clarify what's forgivable and what's not. He doesn't nullify the salvation of those that doubt or have questions or even deny him without full knowledge of who he is. How many of you know that God is not afraid of your questions? As long as you have inquisition, that's fine. That's not a problem. He's not nullifying that person's salvation. I want you to consider Peter, the leader to all disciples. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And by confession, Peter steps out, whereas the others do not. And he says, you're the Messiah, the one we've waited on. Peter turn, or God turns Jesus to Peter and says, now look, I'm not going to call you Simon Peter any longer. Simon was the name your father, the fisherman, gave you. But I have a different assignment for you. 
No one could reveal to you who I am except my Father in heaven and by the power of his Spirit. There's, that's the only way that that's illuminated, in your heart. And you have to trust that at the bow of who you are. So I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to give you the keys to heaven and both hell. You're going to preach like no one else has preached. You're going to lead people to freedom, and it's only by me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter, you're going to be my mouthpiece. But do you remember what happened to Peter later on? A lot of people want to point to this. A lot of people want to preach and point to the very thing that Jesus made Peter aware of at the Last Supper. He said, I would never deny you, right? I would never deny you, okay? Peter, here's the thing. You're going to deny you even know me three times for the rooster crows at the crucifixion. Sure enough, rooster crows, Jesus looks at Peter, and there's Peter in all his shame and guilt, brokenhearted, and immediately does what? Goes back to fishing, goes back to his old life because he feels completely unworthy to be the person to preach the name of Jesus when he publicly denied him. So many people point to that as blaspheming the Spirit. If we've learned anything through the Gospel of Mark, have we not learned that Jesus perceives our thoughts even before things are spoken? That he knows our heart and what we trust before we even say something, correct? That's why in John 21, we read that Jesus shows up on the seashore, follows Peter to where he is, because he's returned to fishing, shows Peter he can't even fish without the Lord. And then he reinstates him, restores him, asks him, do you love me more than these fish? Three times, once for each time he denied me, to put him back in his rightful place in the kingdom. Hello? Hello? Because never in Peter's heart did he stop believing in the Lord. In fact, that's why he felt so ashamed that he denied him publicly. He said it, but he never believed it. How many of you have ever said something that you regretted later? How many of you are grateful that that didn't damn you for eternity? Because you said something with your mouth, but you never believed it in your heart. So Peter never believed it in his heart, so God knew what he had in him. These men who are challenging him who say, you are of Satan, never believed it in their heart. Never trusted it. Denied from the beginning. So, for, for them, it was hard to accept someone saying that he was the Messiah. I get that. But they also knew that his, his miracles were undeniable. And so, with all full knowledge, they willingly rejected him. And that my folks, is the only unforgivable sin. When we blaspheme the Spirit, it is understanding who Jesus is with full knowledge, understanding the message of Jesus and the power of Jesus. And here's the thing. For us today, we are definitely not off the hook. Here's why. Because we have His written Word before us. We have the full story here in print. All the message of Jesus the urging of his spirit, the authority of what he said and what he did before us. And when we have full knowledge but choose to reject him in our heart, this is not mindless doubt or inquisition or curiosity. That's not deeming someone away forever, okay? Jesus is okay with your doubts and questions. 
It's a part of your faith journey. It's a part of exploring and understanding who he is. It's how you come to trust him. But when we in full knowledge just decide like the Pharisees that he's a liar, we decide for ourselves our eternal destination. Hello? So, um, it says that in John 20, 29, because you've seen and believe, Jesus' words, blessed are those who have seen and yet have not seen and yet still believe. Jesus is saying that we today cannot, even though we can't see him physically, say what he said or do what he did in the flesh, we are more blessed for hearing about what he did and taught and trusting in it implicitly. But the opposite would have to be true. Hello? When you look at the truth and completely deny it, when Jesus himself said, it is finished, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But we willingly go, no. We count ourselves amongst the Pharisees. And we blaspheme the Spirit. It is knowing in full knowledge and denying Him. Jesus gave an example in the parable of the sower in Luke 8, Mark 4, and Matthew 13. In this passage... You see Jesus share about casting the truth before people. And it falls on rocky soil. It falls amongst the thickets. And it falls to where it can be eaten and taken away. Four examples of what happens to that word, the gospel itself, the seed, the truth. One in four land on good soil, able to take root. Able to take root. So they can grow up into faith. Listen, too many people want to use this as an example of someone losing their salvation. If you hear it that way, I'm going to be as clear as I can with you. That is taking this text out of context. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is, I amassed crowds who showed up by the seashore to watch me do magic tricks. When I said... The only way you can be my disciple is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and come after me. They left in droves. Hello? Everybody wants to see what I can do. Few want to trust who I am. Will we be counted amongst the few? Or will we, with full knowledge, reject the one who is light? In our present darkness. The enemy would desire for you and I to continue to stay masked. Continue to stay blinded to the truth. That's his desire. That was his desire for the Sanhedrin. That was his desire for the Judaizers of the day. And guess what? He won in that. Not with all, but with most. Will he continue to keep you and I deceived because we are unwilling to accept the truth. This morning, my friend, I'm going to give you a couple responses this morning. Now, Jesus is okay with your doubts. That's true. And he has no problem with that. Jesus is very clear that my power is supernatural. And it makes no sense to believe that my power comes from the enemy because no enemy is going to divide itself. 
The enemy is trying to attack my kingdom and keep you on lockdown. So he's not going to do anything to help God. But right in here and right now, you and I have an opportunity to respond. Because there are people right here who today live apart from Jesus. And for whatever reason, circumstantially or our unwillingness to accept, we continue to deny him with our existence. We have heard the truth. We have witnessed what he did, and we choose to be deceived as if it's not real just as much as we choose to receive. The devil is just red tight wearing, running around with a pitchfork. Some comical example, a figment of our imagination. And let me be clear, if that's the way you see the enemy, you probably see the Lord that way, and that is a problem for you, for no one else. Hello? This morning, that's not what the Lord wants. He loves you. He wants to share with you the truth of why he created you in his image and the purpose by which you exist right here this morning in this seat. And by submitting your will for his, it unlocks the reality of eternity for you and what you exist for. You're going to find peace and love that right now in a world deceived and lied to, you do not have living apart from Christ. This morning, if this is you, I will be here, Scott will be here, prayer partners will be on the side, would love to talk to you about the most important decision that exists on the planet, the one that moves you and I from death to life. I made that decision. I've never regretted it. I breathed for the first time, and the weight of the world came off my shoulders. How many people need the condemnation of the weight of the world to come off your shoulders this morning? This place is open for you. Everyone else, if you go, I'm a believer. Justin, I made that decision. That's where I'm at. I followed the Lord, and I trust Him. I've not... I may have denied him with my mouth. Anyone, anyone here say things you didn't believe, you regret. In my heart, I've never not trusted. But my lifestyle denies who he is. This is for his church. That's not for, I'm talking about people who are saved by Jesus' blood, redeemed and his, but the rest of the world would never know it by the way you speak and the way you act, the way you respond in life. Today, this altar is open, and so is his table. Come to him and say, thank you for giving me life, and thank you for letting me live to this moment in the grace that I can come and receive forgiveness right here, right now, because I want to walk out of here looking more like you than I did when I came in. Hello? Daily take up your cross and come after me. Daily lay down your will and your pursuits for mine. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's the opportunity we have. My friend, I caution you for anyone who choose to walk out of here and not respond in one of these two ways. That's called pride. It's called arrogance. And God says, I will give grace to the humble, but I'll resist the proud every time. There were over 300 Messianic prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. He told us himself that he was he. So we have to consider what we're embracing this morning. The punishment and eternal torture of denying him or the embrace of the only one who ever loved you unconditionally in this very room, right here, right now.
The step is always going to require faith. We have the information. The question is, what will we do with that information? This morning, as the band is coming back, I have one question. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and as the band begins to play as our prayer this morning, this is my question to you. Friends, what do you choose? Light or dark?